there are certain words in our lives that when we hear them, they have a devastating impact, not only because of the meaning, but because of the surprise and the unexpectedness. Uh, when you're on a flight, you never want to hear the pilot say, brace for impact. Uh, those words will change your life forever. When you go into a doctor's office for a follow-up and you're in the middle of a fight for your life, you never want to hear the doctor say, I'm sorry, it, it's terminal. You never want to have a relationship and that person tells you, hey, we need to talk, and then nothing else. They make you wait. Words like, I want a divorce are devastating. You never want to get that call from your tax guy and have him say, I made a mistake. Because it's never a good mistake. It's never that you're getting back more money. It's always that you have to pay more. And, and there's, for most of us, we've gone through a season the last couple years where we've heard words like this that were, were devastating, were surprising, were unexpected. There was a, a point for me in 2020 where I felt like every time my phone went off, it was a new piece of bad news. Breaking news was never good news. It was always bad news. A couple weeks ago, I, I texted somebody on our team. I said, hey, can I call you? Because that's what we do these days. You don't call people. You text them, can I call you? Um, and I said, hey, can I call you? I said, I have good news. Because I wanted to warn him. I figured that he was expecting more bad news. And he said, yeah, you can call me. I actually have good news too. And it was a great call. We each had good news. How rare is that? But, but so often we, when we're in a season where we feel like the hits just keep coming, where thing after thing keeps happening that we didn't see coming, it can be overwhelming. And, and life teaches us that we are not in control. Control is a myth. And while we are not in control of what happens to us, we do get to choose our response. And so today we're launching a new series called Didn't See It Coming. Either right now, with where you're living today, or in the future, you're going to have a moment where you say these four words. Wow, I didn't see it coming. And it, you either need the series that we're starting today, or you will need it one day. Because life will throw you a curveball that you don't see coming. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to look at the story of some people who lived through a moment that they didn't see coming. And in the midst of that, God worked a powerfully redemptive story. And I believe that this series is going to encourage you as it's already encouraged me. So as we go through the book of Ruth today. So our big idea is this, if you're taking notes, when life twists, and it will always twist on you, where you turn matters. When life twists, when life goes in a direction that you didn't see coming, where you turn in that moment matters. And before we go any further, I just want you to think about where you instinctually turn. All of us have muscle memory, but we also have like emotional muscle memory that is the things that get triggered when life twists in a direction we didn't see coming and we turn to things. We turn to people, we turn to substances, we turn to experiences. And before we go any further, I just want to ask you, where do you turn when life twists? What's that thing that you reach for to steady you or strengthen you? And again, I want to encourage you to be honest with yourself. This is a rhetorical question. You're not writing it down. You're not telling anybody this is just between you and God. But this is not theoretical. This is real. 
because life is going to twist on you. So where do you turn? Today, we're going to talk about where we turn. And to do that, we're going to turn in our Bible to the book of Ruth. So we've been in, in the New Testament for the last several weeks on the road to Easter, celebrating Easter. We're going back to the beginning of your Bible to the book of Ruth. Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So near the front of your Bible is this little short book. In my Bible, it's just two pages, not long, less than a hundred verses. But Ruth has been beloved for many years for how real and honest and true to life it is. And I think that you'll see that today. We're going to be in Ruth for the next five weeks. And as we read this first section in Ruth, I want to invite you to stand with me as we honor God's word this morning. If you don't have a Bible, just watch the screen. Here's how Ruth begins. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and his two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second named Ruth. And after they lived in Moab for 10 years, both Malon and Chilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Jesus, I pray for the people in this room, those who are watching live and those who will watch later, who are in the middle of a moment they didn't see coming. I pray that what they hear today from you in your word would strengthen them renew them, and fill them with hope. And I pray the words of my mouth today, Jesus, and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, if you've been around Cornerstone for any period of time, one of the things that I've told you is if you want to understand what's happening in a moment, you have to understand context. So this book is beginning right there as we read it, but there's a context that this real-life true story happened within. And we get that context from the very first words in verse 1. Ruth begins with this phrase, during the time of the Judges. Judges is the book that precedes Ruth. And the book of Judges is like one great cycle repeated over and over and over again. It's 21 chapters but if you just look at the story of one judge in the book of Judges, you get the whole story. And I'll give you just a cliff nail version. The story begins with the people of Israel, God's people in the promised land, living unfaithfully, abandoning him. Then God allows a, a judgment to come from the outside, from a foreign nation. The people experience either oppression or difficulty or, or some sort of attack. They cry out to God, God help us. We repent. We know that we've been going the wrong way. God raises up a judge, a leader, who leads the people into deliverance. And as long as that judge is alive, they're good. But then the judge dies. 
the people begin to walk away from the Lord and the pattern begins again. It's kind of like if you've ever read Nicholas Sparks book, if you've read one, you've read them all. The person you love is going to die. And so we see in the book of Judges this pattern over and over again. And the last section of Judges tells us the context of Ruth. This is how Judges ends. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Sounds like 21st century America to me. See, in that day, everybody was deciding what was right for them. And so what that meant is that the the scene was filled with people that weren't living true to who God called them to be. And at the beginning of Ruth, we we see that there's a famine in the land. Now, in the, the days of Judges, which is the context of Ruth, famine was often the tool that God used to wake his people up to their unfaithfulness. Let me be clear. Every famine in world history, every famine in this world, in this moment today, is not God's judgment. Because not every people today is God's people. So don't take this as a principle and project it out. But in this moment, what we're seeing is there's a famine, and many times in this period, God used famine to wake his people up. And this people, Naomi, Elimelech, Ultimately, they're kids that we're going to learn about. They're living in Bethlehem. Now, I've been a pastor for a number of years. I've been a Christian for a number of years. I learned something this week I never knew before. The meaning of the word Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread in Hebrew. So the house of bread is empty. There's no bread in the house of bread. And that's what drives what we're about to see. Today, I want to share with you four choices we have in response to a moment we didn't see coming. You don't get to choose whether that moment happens to you. That's, that's life. You're not in control of that. But you are in control of your response. And in each of these choices, we're going to talk about a word. And that word in English is turn or return. But in Hebrew, it's the word shub. Think shrub, but drop the R. This word shub or turn or return occurs 12 times in this first chapter. And as I've told you before, if something happens repeatedly, pay attention. So today I want to talk to you about four choices we make in response to moments we don't see coming and all of them have to do with the direction we turn. The first choice you have when you have a moment that comes your way like this is you can turn back to the Lord or you can turn your back on the Lord. When something happens that you don't see coming, especially if you've not been walking with the Lord, you can either turn back to him or you can turn your back on him. And what we see in this text is we see some people who initially turn their back on the Lord. We meet this man in verse one named Elimelech. And in the day of Jesus and the day of the Bible, the day of Elimelech, names mattered and you chose names based upon their meaning. Elimelech's name in Hebrew means my God is king. But what we see in the passage we just read is God is not king for Elimelech. Because when things go bad, Elimelech leaves the land that God told him to live in and he flees, it says, to Let me show you the the distance he traveled. So Bethlehem is this little green dot right here where the top arrow is pointing. It's just four miles south of Jerusalem, significant city. Moab is over here on the other side of the Dead Sea. And whether you go north around the sea or south under the sea, you're going to walk about 50 miles. Not a short trip. 
And so what we see in Ruth 1.1 is that when this famine comes on the land, Elimelech leaves Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and his two sons to go to the territory of Moab for a while. Now this is significant because by the time we're in Judges, we're well past the story of the Exodus. And the people, like if you can imagine, Egypt is kind of over here, kind of down here. And the people would have come from Egypt up here through Moab and into the promised land. That's the story of Deuteronomy and Joshua. And when they went through Moab, the ancestors of Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth and others, those ancestors, they persecuted the people of Israel. Have you ever heard the story in the Bible of the talking donkey with Balaam? That's where this happened. The people of Moab and their king tried to eliminate the people of Israel. And this is where Elimelech flees. He turns from God and goes to their mortal enemies. And it says initially that that he went to stay there for a while. But if you're paying attention as we were reading, if you have your Bible still open, and you look down in verse number 4, it says, after they lived in Moab about 10 years. I don't know about you, but 10 years is not a little while. Roll back 10 years and it's 2012. It's not a short time. What we see here is Elimelech left the land that God provided for them, left the place that God promised to use them in, turned his back on that, and went to the land of the people who were mortal enemies, who had tried to smite the people of God, and he intends to stay there for a little bit, but his family ends up there for a decade. And friends, you have lived this same thing. Change the names, change the locations, you've lived the same thing. I'm not sure who first said it, but I think you'll resonate with this quote. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. See, when you choose in a moment that you don't see coming to turn your back on the Lord and you begin like Elimelech walking down a sinful, destructive path, what happens is you end up going further than you ever thought you would go. You end up going, okay, this is just going to be a little thing for a little while. This is just going to medicate me today and make today easier. And you end up staying there, not a short while, a long while. And the price you pay ends up being more than you ever wanted to pay. And this is the story of Elimelech. Given the choice of turn your back on the Lord or turn back to the Lord, he chooses to turn his back on the Lord. He leaves the land that God promised him and his people, and he goes to their enemies, and he ends up there longer than he thought, and things don't go like he thought he did. And what we see is from Elimelech's choice, it doesn't just affect him. It affects Naomi. It affects his sons. And friends, I just want to encourage you, where you turn doesn't just affect you. Where we turn doesn't just affect us. This is the lie with sin. It's just going to affect you. Nobody else is going to be impacted by this. This is just your little choice. No, even our most private sins have public impact. And so where you turn, if you're in a moment today that you don't see coming, I know that you're overwhelmed and I know you don't know what to do. I just want to encourage you that what you do today won't just affect you. It has huge ripples. 
So the first choice we have in a moment we don't see coming is we can turn our back on the Lord or we can turn back to him. The second choice we have is we can turn away from others or we can turn towards others. When you're going through something hard, the temptation sometimes is to pull away from people, to isolate. You also have an invitation to move towards people and connect. So the first five verses of Ruth 1, we see that there's a famine in the land. They leave, they go to Moab, but eventually all famines come to an end. And while they are in Moab, they get word that the famine has ended and that the harvest is beginning again. Now, I know for some of you, this appears to be like pollen and you're like in the middle of pollen season right now. And you're like, this looks like death. Scott, no, this is a barley field. You know, it's not bad. It's good. If you have your Bible open, open back to verse six and we'll keep reading. In verse six of Ruth one, it says, she, this is Naomi and her daughter-in-laws because their sons have died. All three of these are now widows set out to return from the territory of Moab because Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. I'm going to give some context here. She left the place where she'd been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Then beginning in verse 8, Naomi says to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. So basically, go back to your mother's home and hopefully find another husband. May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to the dead, her husband and their husbands, and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them. They wept loudly. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Now, in the day of of Ruth and Naomi, there was a, a, a law or a practice that if you were married to a son of a family and that son died, that another son would have a child with you so you could continue that family line. Reason number 74, I'm glad I live when I live now. But that's what they did then. I just want you to understand that. Different from our world, that's what they did. But in this moment, what, what Naomi's doing is like, I'm old. I'm not going to have any more kids. And even if I did, would you wait till they were at age to become your husband? And in this world that they're living in, if you didn't have a husband, you were vulnerable. You had no one to take care of you. You could not own land. You had no way to provide for yourself. And what we see here is that Naomi is pushing people away. She's trying to push Ruth and Orpah back to Moab so she can return alone to Bethlehem. How many of us, when we're going through something hard, when we're struggling, do the same thing? We push people away. We isolate. There's people around us who want to help, and we just say, no, I, I got this. I don't want to talk about it. I want to be left alone for a while. And what we see in this passage is that Naomi is pushing away the very people that God provided for her. Like God is answering her prayers with these daughter-in-law, and she is not having any of it. Back in the text in Ruth 1, 
she says to the daughters-in-law, this is Naomi, may the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to the dead and to me. That word kindness in English, the translators are doing their very best to give you the accurate word, and it is accurate, but it it misses the fullness. The most significant word in the Hebrew section of your Bible, Genesis to Malachi, I believe, is the word hesed. It's this word that's translated kindness. It can also be translated loving kindness, faithful love, and covenant loyalty. It is the love and kindness God chooses to show his people whether they love him back or not. The New Testament equivalent of that is agape, unconditional love. This is the word all throughout the Old Testament that is used for how God loves his people. And here Naomi is saying, Ruth and Orpah, you have loved me with divine love. You have been kind to me with divine kindness. You have been loyal to me the way God is loyal to his people, but get out of here. Get away from me. See, people around us can come in and love us with the best of intentions, but we can push them away. Over the last couple years, there have been some really hard moments. And I'm so grateful that in the year leading up to the craziness of 2020, God began showing me that I was isolated, that I didn't have the relationships I needed. And so I've been working really hard before I knew I was going to be isolated to work to get unisolated. And I'll tell you, the day you realize you're isolated is not the day you stop becoming isolated. It takes time to build those relationships. But it's not enough to have people around you. You have to actually turn towards them. And multiple times over the last couple years, I've got a text message from a friend that started with, hey, stupid. Um, They're not always that bad, but sometimes they're that direct. With my friends who discovered that I'm going through something hard and I didn't tell them about it. Typically, I told my wife, my wife told her friend, who's also uh, their husband, you know, or spouse, and then I hear back and they're like, dude, I heard about this through my wife, not from you. We are friends. We agreed on this. You tell me you're going through something hard. Because sometimes you just don't want to talk about it. Sometimes you just don't want to open up about it. Sometimes it's easier to go through it by yourself. And I just want to encourage you that if you're in a moment you didn't see coming today, God answers prayers with people. Sometimes God's answer to your prayer is not to change the circumstance that you didn't see coming. His answer is to provide you someone to walk with you through that circumstance. But those people can't help you if you're turning away from them and not making them aware of what you're going through. And and I felt like as I was reading through this, I've been Naomi. I've pushed away the very people God's put in my life. Maybe you have to. That's the second choice. You can turn away from people or you can turn towards people. The third choice you can make is this. You can turn in to shut down or you can turn out to remain open. You can turn in to shut down in the midst of a moment you didn't see coming or you can turn out to remain open. We're going to jump to the end of this chapter and skip over some stuff we're going to come back to in a second. But here's how this passage ends. And this is why I love this passage because Naomi's honest. She comes back to Bethlehem and, she, and people are saying, hey, is that you, Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi's raw. She's honest. She's like, I left this place with a husband and sons. I come back with none of them. I left full of love and joy and a family, and now I'm coming back alone. When you're in a moment that you don't see coming, those kind of thoughts run through your head. Those kind of emotions are present in your heart. If you have not screamed and raged and yelled at God, you either haven't been in a relationship with God for a while or you haven't gone through something hard during that time. Because like every relationship, you go through it. And we live in a world where our tendency is to take a pill for that, to numb that. Well, in Naomi's world, there was no Tylenol. There was no Percocet. There was no Tums. There was no numbing of those things in the body outside of alcohol. She could not numb. And so she's just pouring it out, pouring it out to God. I'll tell you this, as I was reading this passage, my mind went back to a, a moment in time. It's, uh, it's the tightest I can ever remember grabbing the steering wheel. And sometimes you just kind of wear the steering out so hard because you're so stressed. You're so wound up. My wife and I had a gift that we uh, had a couple who did some premarital counseling with us. And I recommend premarital counseling to everybody. In fact, I won't do a wedding if there's not premarital counseling. I've been through enough now where those issues were present before and they didn't get help. Let me just tell you, premarital counseling, not to fix your issues. It's just to identify them. Because sometimes those are the issues you can deal with your whole marriage. But we were in premarital counseling with this couple and they were surfacing what some of our issues were. And one of those issues was money. I came into marriage, my wife came into marriage with debt, and I had some unhealthy money practices. But they were fine because they just impacted me. But when I got married, it's now going to impact us both. And in that conversation at this couple's house, things got a little bit intense because I realized I was going to have to change and I didn't want to change. I realized that the choices I'd made were not going to be easy to get out of and they were going to affect her. And so driving her back to her apartment that night after that session, I grabbed that steering wheel super tight. And though I was in the car, my body was the only thing in the car. Everything else was unavailable to her. I shut down. And if you are close enough to somebody that you know how they react emotionally, you can watch somebody turn in sometimes. And I was turned in. I was shut down. And my wife lovingly and patiently from the passenger seat began to kind of peel the onion layers back on me. And underneath all that anger and frustration and tenseness was shame. I felt the shame that my choices were now going to impact her. And I wanted to pull away from her as a result. And I can remember driving home that day, she said, hey, I haven't rejected you. I know this stuff. It's not a surprise to me. And I choose you anyway. And in that moment, it became easier. I didn't say easy. Easier 
to turn to her and open up. And I just want to encourage you today, when life twists, where you turn matters. And in your relationships, your closest relationships, you may find the temptation to turn in and shut down. And that will limit what God can do in you, and it will limit how God can use the people around you. It's not easy to allow something hard to open you up, but that is how God begins to work. And we see in the next moment the difference between Naomi's path and another path in our final choice. And that's the difference between turning to bitterness and turning to trust. The final choice you have in a moment you didn't see coming is turning to bitterness or turning to trust. Now, you may have noticed, because we skipped a section, that Naomi comes back with Ruth. Let me show you how that happens, beginning in verse 13. Naomi says to Orpah and Ruth, No, my daughters, my life is too bitter for, for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, she's doing all she can to push these two women away. It works with Orpah. Orpah goes back home. It does not work with Ruth. Now in verse 16, But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And when, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. It was a long 50-mile walk back to Bethlehem. Some of you had that happen before. You tell somebody you're not going to abandon them, and guess what they do? They get really quiet. They stop talking to you because they realize they can't change your mind, but they want to. See, in essence, what Naomi is saying about God in this moment is, I believe in God, but he's been brutal to me, and I'm bitter. This is significant because of the meaning of the name she has and the name she's chosen. Naomi's name in Hebrew means sweetness, but Mara means bitter. If you know the story of the Exodus, the people ended up in Exodus 15 in an area where the water was bitter. They called the place Mara, and Moses performed a miracle to make the water sweet to drink. The opposite has happened for Naomi. She started out sweet, and now she's bitter. Can I be honest with you guys? Bitterness in followers of Jesus is all too common. There are many people who follow Jesus. They still believe in him, like Naomi, but they're bitter towards him. Let me tell you what bitterness is, according to Tim Keller. He says, worry is fear that God will get it wrong, and bitterness is believing that he did. You think God got it wrong when you lost that job? You think God got it wrong when you lost that house? You think God got it wrong when that person broke up with you or divorced you? You think God got it wrong when you ended up in Prescott? this is not where you thought you'd be? You think God got it wrong when your stock account went like this, not like this? You think God got it wrong when your kids stopped talking to you and you're now estranged? 
Bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. And I will tell you that sometimes I think in many ways it, it's inevitable to go through a feeling of bitterness, raging at God, not understanding. The problem is in the place many of us should put a tent, we build a house. It's a one thing to camp in bitterness. It's another thing to build a monstrous house there. I've been bitter at God. And I'll tell you, I stayed there too long. Kind of like a Limelech going to Moab. And some of you, I would encourage you today, you've, you've planned to be in bitterness for a short while and now you've been there a long time. But where you are today is not where you have to stay. And I hope that this series points you like it does Naomi to a different future. So if you're bitter today, that's where you are. Be honest about it. But my prayer is over the next four weeks, God will lead you somewhere new. Because what we see with Ruth is a different path. What Ruth says is, hey, I've been living in Moab. I've been worshiping another God. I'm part of a different nationality, a different people. But guess what, Naomi? I'm not going to abandon you. Your people are my people now. Your God is my God now. And may that God deal with me ever so severely if I abandon you. Ruth turns her back on everything to stay with Naomi and follow the same God. And what we see is to turn towards God is to turn your back on something else or someone else. And if you're going to follow and use this season as something has happened to you that you didn't see coming to turn you back towards God, that means you're going to have to turn your back on something else. Maybe it's the bitterness and the hurt. Maybe it's the life you thought you were going to live. Maybe it's the plans that you had. Maybe it's someone that you thought was going to be in your life forever. But just as you turn your back on God and go towards something else, when you turn towards God, you turn your back on something else too. And that's why I just want to encourage you today that when life twists, and it will always twist, where you turn matters. So let me give you some next steps this morning. The first one's easy and all of you can do it. Okay? I want you to read Ruth 1 today. 21 verses. You can do it. If you don't want to read it, just get your Bible app open and have it play the audio for you. About three minutes, you'll be done. I picked an easy one first because I knew it was a harder message. So I'd encourage you. I didn't read every verse today, but I'd encourage you to read Ruth 1 today. Okay, that's the first one. The second one's a little bit harder. Honestly evaluate the direction of your turns. So when it comes to those four turns, turning your back to the Lord or turning back to him, turning away from others, turning to others, turning inward, turning out, turning to bitterness, turning to trust. I'd encourage you to just do a little bit of self-evaluation. Look in the mirror. Say, hey, where am I turning? If you, you're not in a didn't see coming moment, think back to a recent one and evaluate. Here's the third one. Tell someone about one turn you can make in a more life-giving and God-honoring direction. Now, I'll tell you, this wasn't the original next step. I was talking to our team, and the original one was identify something. And they said, well, it's, it's easy to identify something, but then not do it. And I'll tell you, when I tell people what I've learned about myself that's not healthy, you know what they do? They hold me accountable to go in a different direction. 
So I'd encourage you, not just identify what's that one place, but tell someone, because sometimes these turns are hard. And it takes people to help us and encourage us and check in on us. And then the fourth one, look for what God is beginning in this season. Even in the midst of moments you didn't see coming that are hard and painful, God begins things. And this is how Ruth 1 ends. It says, Naomi comes back from Moab with Ruth. And the last sentence of chapter 1 says, They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. God's beginning something even right now, where you are. You may have lost someone. You may have lost something. You may not be where you thought you would be. Things may be more difficult than you ever planned. No one wakes up and goes, you know what, I'm going to become a better person. But God could be beginning something right now that one day will be a beautiful harvest. Look for, keep your eyes open for that new beginning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for meeting us in this place. We thank you for the honesty and the, the rawness of, of Naomi's confessions and her experience. God, we thank you for the truth of Scripture that is so real and true to our lives. And we thank you for the hope that we could take a turn like Naomi or by your grace, we could take a turn like Ruth. We could turn our back on you in this moment, or we could turn to you. Jesus, for the people in this room who are going through a dark and difficult season that surprised them and came unexpectedly, I pray that they would see the sprouting of a new beginning. Like a seedling breaking through the dirt, I pray they would see your work beginning and that they would cling to hope. Easter was last week, Jesus, but your tomb is still empty. You're still risen from the dead and you're still in the business of bringing dead things back to life, bringing light out of darkness and hope out of despair and healing out of bitterness. And so we pray that you'd begin that work in us in this season. We pray you'd make room for it and we would look for it. In your name we pray, amen.